Amen. Well, Paul, while he was writing to Timothy and to the church at Ephesus in chapter 1, he made sure to, to urge Timothy to silence the false teachers that were in the church. And of all the instructions and the directions that he could have provided Timothy to how to carry that out, the one thing that he told them over and over again that was most important, that above all else, that he would defend and protect the gospel of Jesus Christ. These false teachers were, were, were messing with the gospel, and Timothy, as a pastor of that church, needed to make sure that it stopped. Now, the question is, why is it that Paul is so urgent to, to tell him this? Why, why, is he, why is he so urgent in his plea with Timothy? And I think it's primarily because he knows that this is ultimately a matter of life and death. He knows that if you preach the wrong gospel or believe the wrong gospel, that that's bad news. If, if somebody believes and gets into the word of God and begin to read the commands of God that are, that are throughout all of scripture and believes that, by, that, that these are a means by which we can somehow be accepted by God by just obeying them well enough, then that leads to disaster. The gospel tells us we can't be saved by following the law, but instead, we follow the law because we have been accepted by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by his mercy and his grace. It's not what we do to earn his favor. It's what we do because he has given freely his favor to us, right? And so, so, so what he's done is he's trying to protect the gospel in chapter one. And he's done it by showing us the appropriate way to use the law within the gospel message itself. He's He's demonstrated the power of the gospel, as David pointed out so brilliantly last week, uh, on how the gospel changes everybody who is saved by that gospel. And the last thing he tells them is he just encourages them again to fight for the gospel. Now, we're leaving chapter one, so let me explain what Paul does oftentimes in the majority of the books that he writes. He almost always lays down and explains a bunch of theology in the first half of the book, and then he begins to bring about practical application of the doctrines that he's shared. For example, in the book of Colossians, first two chapters is all theology. It's like all, sometimes a little bit like chewing on like cardboard. And you're just trying to get through the two chapters. And then finally, everything comes to life because he brings in the application of all those truths. And then you put them together and you're like, oh, I get it. He's doing the same thing here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now he's going from the theological to the practical. Now what he's going to do is emphasizing the gospel. Now he's going to say, I want to show you what it looks like to live out the gospel as a faith community, as a church. When you're gathered together, these are the things that you practically need to be doing. Or as he says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is, he's instructing us on how we ought to behave within the household of God. And it's interesting because he comes right out of the chute, right in verse 1, and he tells us exactly what you and I as a church ought to do above all else. And his command might be a little bit surprising, and that is that we are to pray, that we are to pray. Look at, look at verse one, what he says. He says, first of all, then, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, when Paul says, first of all, he's not saying, hey, listen, this is this is the first of several things that are co-equal and of co-importance. Kind of a preacher when he gets up and goes, I'll be preaching three points this morning, right? And none of them are more important than the others. It's just the order in which they're in. He's not using that phrase in that way. Instead, he's saying, this is what is most important of all. If you do anything 
as a church, individually, if you do anything as a church corporately, the thing you must do, here's the command from the Apostle Paul, being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this, he says, you ought to pray. And then he lists like four different words for prayer. He says, he refers to supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving, all just demonstrating different aspects of what prayer is and different types of prayers. And we could sit down and we could take a long time of unhashing each of those and trying to draw distinctions within them. But I don't think that's the point of Paul. I think what Paul is saying is, hey man, however you're praying, whatever you're praying for, you need to specifically pray. The reason for listing those four things and saying that we need to, to, to pray and we need to do those things is because he wants us to know above all else, it's the most important and we need to do it often and we need to do it fervently with sincere hearts. Now, what I think is interesting, what struck me this last week in reading this, is this is completely opposite the way that I often do things. And it's the way that I think that many churches do things. We love to do a whole lot of things, and then when all else fails, let's pray about it, right? I mean, have you, have you said that yourself, where you sat there and go, well, what can we do now? Person's on life support. What can we do now? Well, there's nothing left for us to do but pray. Just pray now. As though it's like, we're, it's like a Hail Mary, right? It's like, hey, we can't do anything else. We have no other ability. We have no control whatsoever. I mean, let's just, let's pray and see if that ultimately works. Paul is sitting there going, no, get away from that kind of thinking altogether. He doesn't, Paul ultimately is commanding us. He says, look, I don't want you to try anything. I don't want you to do anything. I don't want you to use your gifts. I don't want you to attempt uh, to, to, to apply your talents or energies or wisdom. What I want you to do above all else is begin to pray. Prayer is not something that you ever graduate from. You got that right. That is the graduation is prayer. It's kind of like this last week when I was watching my wife and, and our girls. I've got a lot of girls, lots of girls. I mean, they're just all over the place, right? Five of them in the house, and, and here she is. And, and we, we joke, you know, we have one boy, five girls, because uh, God knew what we could both handle. And for me, it was one boy, and she could get five girls. And there they are in the kitchen, and she's cooking. Do you remember cooking with your mom growing up? And what do you do with that little one that wants to help so bad? You get the stool out, you get them stand on the stool, and you hand them something, because over here is dangerous, here is the pot, here is boiling hot water. You wanna keep them safe, and you say, here, I need your help. Hold this, and they hold it, right? And they hold it, and they're apart, and they're sitting there, and you're like, yeah, just stay away from that. But the whole time, they want to stir the pot. That's what prayer is. Prayer isn't holding something on the stool. Guess what? Prayer is stirring the pot. That's the thing that the church wants to do. It's what they want to graduate to. Not doing a bunch of stuff, praying frequently and fervently. That's what he says that we are to do. But who are we to pray for? Well, he tells us that as well. He says that we are to pray for all people. Now, I don't believe he means there that literally every single person on the face of the earth that we are specifically to pray by name. I think what he's saying is that we just, we need to broaden our horizon of who we're ultimately praying for. We need to pray for all kinds and all types of people. The reason for that is because we have a tendency to be pretty narrow in those that we ultimately pray with, Right? You meet together with a small group. I love my small group. I love the guys that are in my small group. And this is kind of how it goes. We pray for health. We pray for a job. We pray for spiritual well-being. We, we, we pray for somebody's child so that they'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. But it's all very narrow, isn't it? It's all about this one group and everything that's happening within their life. 
And I think what God is saying is for the church to function is the way that God has designed church to be. We have to open that up. And we have to pray not only for that, but we need to pray for a whole world. That scope needs to broaden immensely. You say, why is that? It's because God is not a little village God. God's interests do not begin and end with you and me and what's happening here on Mercy Hill. God, God's interest begins and ends first with himself and then all that he has created. That means the whole known world. As, as Philip Ryken writes, he says, the God who rules the world wants his people to pray for the world. You got that? Pray for the whole world, not, not just for what's going on. Now, let me ask you, how many of you have prayed for the whole world? Well, then there's your application, right? There's your application. We're so singularly focused, but he says, here's what I need you to do. I need you to pray. I need you to pray often. I need you to pray frequently, but I need my people to broaden their horizon and what they pray for and begin to pray for all kinds of people everywhere. Got that? Now, notice the next step. He gives us another thing to pray about. We're not only to pray for all people, but we are to pray for all those in authority. Look at verse two. He says, for kings and all who are in high places. It's just basically a command for you and I to pray for all governmental authorities, whether there be kings, whether they be the president, the vice president, they be senators, or they be uh, whoever, governors, mayors, whoever it is, this is who God specifically wants us to pray for. Now, why would he pick out this particular group? I think there's two reasons. I think, number one, this would be naturally a group that the church would probably leave out praying because they weren't big fans of the government. Does that make sense? They're not praying for them because understand that during this time, feel, understand the weight of this command. There's not a whole lot of kings around that are going, hey, go Jesus, all right? In fact, they are just the opposite. They're trying to impede the gospel and they hate Christians. Narrow, who is, who is the emperor at this particular, particular time, you've heard of him before, I'm sure. Uh, here was a man that when the great fire breaks out in Rome, what does he do? He pins it on the believers in Christians and they begin to be crucified and they begin to be beaten and all their neighbors ultimately turn against them. He blames them for the fire that happens in Rome. Here is a man that hates Christians so badly that he takes them, he dips them and rolls them in pitch and he connects them. He ties them to stakes in his garden and he lights them in fire as he invites his friends over to illuminate his garden at night as they're having cocktails late at night. And yet this is the man who Paul has at the center of his heart when he says, I want you to pray for all those in authority. Paul knew that the natural response to people who use their family and friends as human tortures was hatred, not prayer. That you and I, if we're gonna pray for those who are in authority, it's always gonna be the politicians that we like, right? Hey, God, give them strength. Give them direction. Let them do well. Let them get elected. But how many of us spend a great deal of time praying for all of those authorities? And there's a lot of them around the world that do not hold to our beliefs, at all. In fact, they are almost anti-Christ in, in general, and yet we're sitting back going, no, there's some we should pray for, some not. He says, no, you are to pray for all of them, not just those that champion Christian beliefs, but all those that are even opposed to Christ. And he says that you are, and this is all so consistent to Christianity, isn't it not? Isn't it? Where, where God says he, says, he says, Jesus says in Matthew chapter five, he says, I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully persecute you. So this is all consistent 
with following the person of Jesus Christ. Philip Rankin says uh, at one particular point, he said, or no, John Calvin, I'm sorry. John Calvin says at one particular point, human depravity is not sufficient grounds for not supporting something that God has ordained. That is such an important truth. What it means is this. There is no politician, no dictator, no ruler in the world that is so lost and so depraved and doing such horrific things that you don't have a spiritual responsibility to pray for. And by pray for, I don't mean, hey, God, I hope they, you take them out. I, I don't mean that kind of prayer, but that God would save them, that God would use them for his glory, that God would bless them according to his grace and his mercy. This is how we ought to be praying. You know what the truth is? I just don't think we do it a lot. Would you agree? Do you guys remember this little election we had just a little while ago? Do you guys remember that just a little bit? Uh, I'm still detoxing from that, right? I'm, most of my counseling is trying to talk people off the it's It's over. The vote is over. You can move on. Everything is, is okay. But here's what we do a lot. Have you noticed this? During election time, God's people have a tendency to complain a lot. They just complain about the candidates. I don't like the candidates. I don't like that. I don't like mine. I don't like theirs. I don't like whatever. And they, there's a lot of complaining going on. There's a lot of fear-mongering going around. You know, I'm fine as long as people just don't talk to me. I don't mean that in a bad way. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me explain. What I mean by that is I could go off and be fine and just ministering to people and loving people, but then all of a sudden they get into my ear and they get into my psyche and they start telling me how everything is gonna fall apart if this particular individual gets, gets elected. And then all of a sudden I can't enjoy my time with my family, right? Because I'm in the backyard digging a ditch trying to be able to get a bunker ready for the, for the end of the world. And so everybody, so, so this is one thing that I have learned, and, and you tell me if I'm right. I have never found that complaining and being fearful has ever been constructive and ever helped with anything, anything. Look, if you, if, if you want to make a temporal difference in, 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 in elections and things like that, then campaign for your favorite uh, person, um, you know, write your congressman, uh, vote. I think those things can be very important. I think they're all great and they're all wonderful, but, but if you want to make an eternal difference, pray. If you want to make a, a difference, I mean, an, an actual real difference. You know what one of the things that Christians often do, and I, I get a little bit tired of hearing it over and over, and I'm trying to be on my best behavior, but sometimes it's hard, right? Would you, do, I, do I hear an amen? And one of those that I have is when lost people are constantly complaining about, or saved people are constantly saving about lost people and how appalled they are by their sin. Newsflash, sinners sin, okay? You ought not to be surprised by that. But one of the things around the election that it was so hard for me is where people could sit back and basically what they're doing is they're saying the reason that this nation is in such a mess is because of what lost people are ultimately doing. And they're, they're just, they, they're besides themselves. And I wonder if what Paul is ultimately saying us is say, hey, listen, we need to take responsibility ourselves in this fact that it's in such a mess as some would deem it and some think that it is, not because of those who are lost, but because of the prayerlessness of God's people to pray for those who are lost. I think that's what Paul's ultimately trying to tell us. Now, notice this. It says he's gonna tell us a little bit of why we are to pray. We are to pray, amen? We are to pray for all people. We're to pray for those powers, those who, the powers that be. But why are we to pray for them? I love that he tells us, because, you know, in the word of God, sometimes God tells us to do something, but he doesn't tell us why. He gives us an inside scoop of why to pray for those authorities. He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And I think this is important to get this right of why we're praying for this. 
Because some people might read that and go, that's absolutely right, man. I want to lead a peaceful life. I've worked a long time. I have a good 401k. I want to be able to work this. I got a 24-foot pontoon boat. I know exactly where to get the best seashells, and I want to spend the next 20 20 years making as many necklaces that I can out of these seashells. I want things to be peaceful. So when things are kind of shaken up, it's not that they're they're upset for their own self that that the country is in the state that it is. And he wants to widen our influence. He wants to widen our concern here. And he says, when he says that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, he's talking about the function of the government, that God has created the institution of the government. You guys know that, right? It's not of the devil. God is the one who's created it as an aspect of his common grace to all of us. And he did that for a reason. He did it because the role of government is to protect the innocent to be able to restrain evil and evildoers as well as judge them and to punish them and to be able to create an atmosphere of peace for their citizens. Why? So that we can go about doing the things that God has called us to do. He says it right here. He says so that we could do what? We could be godly and dignified in every way. The word godly just simply means speaking of worshiping God. The idea of dignified just specifically speaks about how we live, moral purity. He says this, Pray for all people, specifically for your government, so that there is peace. Now catch this. So there's peace, so that you can live out the life that I've called you to live. One of pursuing me with everything in your being, being transformed in the image and likeness of, my, of Christ, and as you'll see in the whole context, and to propagate the gospel throughout the whole known world. This is why we pray for peace, not so we can selfishly enjoy all that we've stored up for ourselves, but for the glory of God. And so we we see that Paul, on several different occasions, that this is exactly, precisely what has happened to him. We see an evidence of it in in chapter 19, Acts chapter 19. uh, There is a a group of people there that are upset because the gospel has saturated all of Ephesus. And, and, And guess what happens when the gospel saturates a community? People come to faith in Christ. Would you agree? It's weird how that happens. People come to faith when they hear the gospel. Strange. But it's what happens. And then when people get saved, what happens? Their behavior changes. They become different. They don't take part in the same sinful things that they did. That's what was happening in Ephesus. In Ephesus, people begin to stop worshiping false gods, begin to worship the true God. That's how you really make an impact in your community. Share the gospel. And all of a sudden, these guys who are making these silver, there's a man by the name of Demetrius, and he makes these really cool little, I say cool as being facetious, cool little silver idols for people to kind of buy and have in their little pocket that they can worship whenever they want to. And, uh, and all of a sudden, people are stopped. They're not buying his idols anymore. And he's ticked. So he begins to complain. He gets everybody all riled up. And he goes, man, this has to do with our, our, our living. How are we gonna put food on the table? We need to get them. So the, the Bible says in Acts chapter nine, they end up in this theater and this huge brewing mob, and they're surrounding. Uh, Paul can't even get in. The, the other apostles won't allow him to get in. And, and there are two of his disciples, and they're about to wipe these guys out. And all of a sudden, one of the magistrates stands up and says, gentlemen, I want to warn you that you got, you've almost gone too far. You've almost gone to the point of, go, uh, of rioting, and we know what the outcome of rioting is within the Roman government. It's death and death on a cross. And so he warns them, and all of a sudden, they begin to dissipate. So it restrained the evil. And guess what these two disciples and Paul begin to do? They meet together, and they continue to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very thing that God had called them to do. That's why we must pray. Look, I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form 
that in the midst of war, in the midst of severe persecution, that the gospel can't go forward and that you and I can't live Christian lives. We have people today that are secretly meeting because they live in war zones in places where Christianity is illegal and the gospel keeps moving forward and they keep living for God. But what I am saying to you is we pray for these things because we have an intention of getting the gospel throughout the whole known world and there's greater peace. It's not peace for me to enjoy all my stuff. It's peace so that we can be faithful to be lights to a lost and dying world. Now, what motivates us with all this? So the command is clear, right? We're to pray. You got that? Not real difficult. Who are to pray for? All people, government officials, right? Now, he's gonna give us a motivation. And some of us are gonna need a motivation to be able to pray. And here it is, there's two of them. Number one, we are motivated to pray because God desires all to be saved. God desires all to be saved. Look at verse three and four. He says, this is good and it is pleasing in the light of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, This might be new to you, it may not. If you've been here for a little while, then I think you might get this a little bit more. God is not just trying to save middle white class people uh, 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 in Uly, Florida, who attend Mercy Hill. A- a- anybody agree with that? Okay, we-, we understand that, right? We're all agreed with that. That he instead, he loves all people. His expanse, his interest is far greater than that. Now, why do, I, why do I make that point? I make that point because this is one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture that explain to us both the heart of God and the heart that you and I are supposed to have in God. And what it does is it tells us, it tells us, it tells us about God's missional plan or God's ev- worldwide evangelistic plan that he wants to save all people. But you know what's turned out to be? Just go and get a commentary, you'll see this. You get a commentary and what it's become is it become a huge theological argumentation or what does it mean by all? And on one side, you have people that lean more reformed. On the other side, uh, or Calvinistic. On the other side, you have people that are, are, are more Arminian. And then what you do is you're just, you have these people who are ultimately fighting back and forth. I'm not saying doctrine is not important, but you say, well, how do you view this? Look, we've got people in our own church extremely reformed, don't amen? Some people who are like, dude, I'm, there's no way. I'm, I'm Calvinistic. I'm way more Arminian. And then we got a lot of you who are like, dude, I don't know what in the world you're even talking about with all that, Right? You got all these. Let me, let me just tell you my take of this. I think when he says he desires for all people to be saved, I believe it means that he desires all to be saved. It's the clearest thing I can, I, I can do. And it's just he desires for all people to be saved. Now, that works out in a lot of different ways theologically within our construct, right, brother? It works out in all different types of ways. But, but, but what is it that we're understanding? I think the clearest understanding, and the reason I think that he's saying this, and the reason that he's teaching this is because within the church, in the context itself, there were people in the church saying that God was only loving and caring and wanting to save certain people. Some were Judaizers who ultimately said, no, you, you have to be able to trace your lineage back to the Jewish people, back to Abraham, in order for God to have wanted to save you. There were other people who were sitting there that, that, uh, um, that were agnostics who were saying, no, God is only interested in those who have acquired this special type of knowledge. And I think Paul is just going, you guys have got it all wrong. God desires salvation of all people. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And just, it's, it's, the, it's the clearest understanding of what the text says. Now, let's, let's unpack this just a little bit. I want to unpack this because I feel like our church has come so far and so far over the years in understanding more and more and more 
about what it means to basically have the heart of God and to love all people. So much of early ministry and even today, maybe, maybe you're here today and you're like, hey, I don't understand. I've been visiting this church for a little while and yeah, I think they have a heart for the people here, but man, they sure do talk about and spend a lot of money on sending people way over there. Two weeks ago, I had somebody say, man, you guys are spending a lot of money to be able to send those couples over there. Wouldn't that 70 or so thousand dollars be used a lot better? What could you do here locally with that kind of money? I said, well, we could probably blow up a lot of balloons, eat a lot of hot dogs, blow up a lot of bouncy houses. You could probably blow 70 grand pretty quick. I don't know, I've never had the opportunity. I would love to try one day. Uh, but, but the idea is you could do a lot of those. But what we're saying is, and in, in, this is what I had to say to the individual, hey, brother, we're very, we, we care deeply, deeply, deeply for the souls that are right here within Yuli. Yes, amen? We care deeply for the people in Nassau County. If anything we're saying or anything doing for you is, is making us think that we don't wanna see our loved ones and friends and people in our neighbors come to faith in Jesus Christ, I ask you to please forgive me. That's not it at all. But then why are you going over there? My simplest answer for that is because God told us to. He said to, to not just look for the people locally in Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's just black and white. It's, it's in the word of God. But if you're not a black and white person, you might be able to sit there at the same time and understand a little bit more nurturing. He says, God says this, this prayer for all nations. He says, this is good, and this is pleasing in the sight of God, that you would pray for them, and you would pray for their salvation. Well, if it is pleasing, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, then that's good enough for me. You need to understand your desire for people globally does not diminish your love for people locally. And so sometimes we kind of have this thing, you know, some people are like, hey man, and, and it's kind of like, hey, that's fine. You guys wanna go do that over here. I'm just gonna focus uh, on people locally because my heart is here. And then we have folks that do the opposite where they'll sit there and go, hey, that's fine here, but man, how could you not wanna be able to go to the nations? And the truth is, if they were honest, some of them, some of them that are going are not being faithful here as a witness in their own community. So there's kind of guilt on, on both parts. But here's what I would say. Is it really about what your heart is for or what their heart is for? No, it's about what God's heart is for. His heart is for here and his heart is for there. Catch this. So the reason that we pray frequently and the reason that we pray fervently when we pray for all people and for the government, it's because every time we pray, our broken and crooked hearts come into alignment with a God who loves all people and desires all to be saved. You got that? There's an amen in your back pocket. You might wanna flip it out right there. That's the place, okay? All right? And so, so, so no, no, notice this. So we understand that. So the first reason is because he desires all to be saved. Here's another motivation. is because God deserves all glory. God deserves all glory. Now, uh, let me just walk through this for a minute. A little theology here, verse five. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Okay, so just break this down very quickly. Uh, my, my point is that God is deserving of all glory. Now, why is that? Because he's, there's only one God. There's only one God. Now, you guys do understand that, right? Uh, there's only one God. There's not many gods like all these demigods that are fighting God and he just so happens to be a little bit stronger and he can overpower them. That's not it. That's why in to the Corinthians, 
when the people ask, hey, is it, is it lawful for us to uh, eat meat that has been sacrificed up to idols? And he goes, yeah, man, eat away. Pig out. Well, maybe not pig out, but um, Jewish context. But anyway, so, so you, you don't you know, not do that. But you know, just go ahead. Go, go for it. Eat, eat whatever it is that you ultimately want. And so what, is he, what, is he, what does he say there? He, he, what is he saying? He's saying, hey, the reason you can eat this is because there is no other gods. There's only one God. This is what we hold to. But this is, this, is, this is our roots. You go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. Uh, Shema Israel, Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad, right? The, the, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one, right? We, we understand that. By the way, that's the only Hebrew I remember from college. That's it. And I saw an opportunity to use it, so I used it. And so, 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 so that's it. And so the idea there is it's always about this one God. Well, when you have one God, where is that worship to go? except for the one God who's above all else. And we know that people can make gods of things. We know that people make gods of people, but there are no other deities that actually exist except for God alone. So there's one God, but note this, there's one mediator. The word mediator, a mediator is an intermediary, the person in the middle who affects the reconciliation between two rival parties, uh, uh, two rival parties. The Bible says that man and God are at enmity with each other. If you, are, if you have not repented and placed your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, that means that God calls you, and this is scary, but you are at enmity. That means that you are enemies with God because you are facing and following your rebellion against the creator, God. So how do you get two people that are far apart, huge gap in between them, how do you reconcile them and get back together? Because the problem is man's sin is alienating him from God and God's holiness is alienating himself from us. If you force the two together, we die. We die. Unless somehow that sin is paid for and the righteous demands of the law and God's righteous wrath is satisfied. How do we do that? We do that through the mediator and we do it specifically through the one sacrifice. He says here, he says, who gave himself as a ransom for all, who was the testimony given at the proper time. Proper time just means in the fullness of time when God desired to display and to send his only son. But it's that ransom that pays for our sin. And it also takes away the wrath of God so that through him and only him, only him, that we can come together. We believe that God wants to save all people, but you know what? We believe that there is only one way to salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's it. And so what do we, what do we, what do, we do with all of this? What do, we, what do we say? Well, I say that God is deserving all of all of our glory. So catch it. The reason is because he's only one God. There's only one mediator. There's only one sacrifice. There's only one salvation. Okay, so let me say it this way. I have watched enough Antiques Roadshows to know that when things are unique and rare, that they are usually valuable. I say usually, with the caveat of usually, because um, your stinky old high school t-shirt that you've had for 50 years that's in the drawer, it's unique, it's one of a kind, it's not worth anything to anyone, okay, except for maybe you. But, but usually, when there is something of some type of value, that the more rare it is, the, the more value it is, the more that people admire it, and on Antiques Roadshow, on this one particular episode, I call it the teaspoon episode because there was a teaspoon on it. And there's a silver teaspoon 
that belonged to one of our former presidents. I think, it, I think it was George Washington, which is pretty amazing. But it was the only one in existence. They, they didn't have any more of his teaspoons. And it was worth literally tens of thousands of dollars. And this one family was able to pass it down from generation to generation. And they had this spoon. And they had this spoon all wrapped up in this very safe place. And they have a special place that they present it. And it's all locked. And there's all kinds of security around it. And when they, people come over, they take it out. And they put on gloves to go ahead and grab the spoon and let people see the spoon. And and while they were there, they had special guards with them guarding the spoon. Everybody wants the spoon. And I'm sitting there, and as they're doing the spoon, I'm sitting there, and I'm eating ice cream, which I like to do, and I'm eating ice cream, and I'm like, well, I got a spoon. Yeah, it's just a spoon. And and I'm kind of wrapped in it at first until I realize and go, but it's just a spoon. You know, and I'm like talking. Yeah, but it's the only one. Yeah, but it's just one of many spoons. Yeah, but there's not one like this. Look, There is only one God. There is only one mediator between God and man. There is only one gospel. There is only one sacrifice for sin, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. He is worth all of the glory and the honor and praise. And let me tell you this. When you go to another country and you need to get out of the country every once in a while if you can, and I don't mean because you're afraid of the election. I mean go because God wants us to be able to go. Here's what I would tell you to do. You will go to a Muslim context and early in the morning, way earlier than you ever want to hear it, at 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning, you will hear at that mosque the loudest La, 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 going off like crazy, waking you up. And in the midst of that, you realize that this guy is calling out to a God who does not exist. And they are bowing down and they are worshiping a God that does not exist. And there is something in me that is not okay with that. Because here's why. He redeemed me and he saved me. I did not obey. I, I, I did not deserve it. I was lost. I could not be any more lost. I was as lost as Hitler is lost. I may have not have acted on all sin, but I am capable of all of that sin within me. I'm no less fallen than what Adolf Hitler was, but God in his grace and his mercy granted me faith and belief, and he saved me through his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, if you're like me, I want all the glory and the honor and praise to go to him. And the way you begin that is through prayer, is through prayer. My prayer for you this morning is that you know Jesus Christ. My prayer this morning is that we will be a type of church. I'm telling you, listen. We've got J and W on the field right now. They're, they're, they're over. Some of you know who they are. We just kind of sent them over in the Middle East. And they're over um, uh, seas. They, they've arrived safely. And you guys have been so amazing. Just hear me in this. You've been so amazing that you've been able to follow leadership to be able to pay off the debt that we had, to be able to free up $83,000 a year, to be able to, in part, to be able to send them and to be able to plant a church locally. You've been so amazing. You, you, you've, you, you've, used, you've worked, you've, you've sacrificed, you've done all these things. And I'm telling you, unless we are committed to absolute prayer, all that will be lost. Every bit of it will be lost. Prayer is not holding the cap on a stool in mama's kitchen. It is the stirring of the pot. It is what God has called us to do.